everybody, and welcome to the Evermore podcast, your Newcastle United podcast on the Evermore YouTube channel. Um, we are extremely excited today, or at least I am extremely excited today, uh, to be interviewing a man who I think is now providing an invaluable service to everyday football fans. I was just telling Kieran off air that he may or may not have intended to have this role, um, but he certainly has it now. And that is Kieran Maguire, um, author of The Price of Football and uh, co-host uh, of The Price of Football podcast. Kieran, I want to start by um, just giving you sort of the opportunity, if nothing else, um, to explain how you became uh, The Price of Football guy. Um, and that is what you are to your, to your supporters um, and certain, certainly to fan groups around the country. We were just talking briefly off air there um, about how you sort of got to this spot. But I thought it would be interesting for our, our viewers, our listeners um, of the podcast today to just hear sort of how you got to, to where you are right now talking about football finance every day. It, it, it's a series of lucky accidents like many things in life. Um, in 2005, when it effectively kicked off, I was teaching uh, at a bank in London and uh, it got to two o'clock in the afternoon and all of a sudden there were about three or four big burly bouncers went across the front door and all of the windows uh, were, were shuttered. And I said to the guys in the bank, what's happening? He says, well, there's an announcement uh, about to come through from New York uh, and we've been advising uh one of our clients called the glazer family about taking over a football club called manchester united and i said oh okay and you know we, we had a chat and you know, and I, and I sort of, yeah i know the nature of, of finance and uh you know I, I i'm a teacher and the bbc phoned up my university and said can somebody come and explain this to uh, on breakfast TV because no, none of us know what the leverage buyout means or the implications for the club. Sure. And the university said, well, we've, we've got this guy. He, he He's supposed to be teaching regular finance, but all he does is talk about football. <laughs> and, and and I went on BBC Breakfast. And then the next time a story came in, they because I didn't mess up, then you don't have to be good. You just have to yeah. not be bad. <laughs> so because I didn't mess up, you got invited back. And, and then I started to do it on a regular basis for... Uh, TV and radio and, and newspapers. And even so, it was quite low level. Um, and then sort of three years ago, I, I was approached by by the producer of, of the show, who I worked with at Five Live, when I used to do the, the shows there. And he said he was thinking of setting up a podcast company and he wanted a flagship show. And, and would I present it? To which my answer was, well, I think there's two problems. There's not enough stories. <laughs> and that nobody would be interested in listening to us. And on both of those counts, I was spectacularly wrong. So <laughs> we are now we are now about 260 shows in. We do two shows a week. We started off doing one show. We thought, well, if we can get 20 minutes out a week, we'll be doing well. We're now doing normally two hours of material. We could easily do a third show, but, but I'd, I'd get a free divorce thrown <laughs> if, uh, if, if I ever mentioned to my missus that I did that. Um, and we're getting about 200,000 downloads a month. So yeah. we've, we've found an audience um, and uh, it's it's wonderful working with a professional broadcaster such as Kevin. Um, and it's and it's great that so many fans care about their clubs that because you know, the fact the fans provide half of the, the content because they write in and say we, we've got we've got about we've 800 unanswered questions yeah. in our pile. Uh, and it's my job to go out and research them and find out the answers. But the stuff we get asked, and, and now we've got people who are quite senior wanting to come on the show. So we yeah. get club owners. We've had the head of the EFL. We've had uh, Maheta from the Professional Footballers Association, the head of Scottish football, um, because they know they'll get a fair hearing. You know, we, we we try, we really strive to be completely unbiased uh, and and to sort of go back to the what you might call the original principles of, of broadcasting, which was inform, educate and entertain. And, you know, Kevin's Kevin's a, a comedy writer. He's a comedian. He does the entertainment stuff. I'm I'm, I'm the useful nerd. Yeah, that's my role in the show. <laughs> yeah, no, that's uh, that's fantastic. And for those of you that don't know that Kevin is also an, a, a, a sorry, Kieran is 
also an author. I joked with Kieran that I haven't read this entire book yet. There are lots and lots of pages filled with numbers, so it will go quite quick. But there is some fascinating material in there, Kieran. And one of the things you always say on your show that makes me laugh is that in many ways, you wish you didn't have to do a show about football finance um, for the simple fact that you wish everyday fans like myself and the other listeners on this show and lots of other shows had a better understanding of their club's finances, wish it was clearer and more transparent. And that's probably why FFP exists, not only why FFP exists. Um, but let's talk a little bit, if you don't mind, about sort of the origins of FFP, um, why it, it was needed, why it came about. And then I'm keen to also learn a bit more about sort of who regulates it and who punishes who. But let, let's start by just sort of doing a, a very simple explanation of why and how and when FFP came around, if you don't mind. Well, it was the original idea to a certain extent of Arsene Wenger, but it was it was mainly the, the, the baby of uh, Michel Platini, a man who is presently not able to do very much in the world of football. Uh, and as we speak, uh, he, he is uh, he, he is in, in, in court uh, with regards to accusations from uh, I think from the Swiss government. Um, so he said that the aim of financial fair play was to reduce debt. And that, and that sounds on the face of it quite noble, perhaps. Um, but then you why did it come about? Well, we'd, we'd seen what happened at Chelsea, you know, where Bramovich came in. And we're, we're old enough to remember when the Premier League was, was mainly, you've got the choice of two clubs winning it each year. And I know Newcastle disrupted that to a certain extent, but they, they almost got bank, almost went bankrupt on the back of that. Yeah. Under Kevin Keegan. So, um, you know, it, it, it was it was a bit stale, the Premier League, and all of a sudden, two teams became three. Manchester City entered with Sheikh Mansour, three teams became come four. And you could see the established uh, elite of Europe thought, hold on, you know, we, we expect to be guaranteed Champions League places. We expect to be guaranteed winning these competitions. And these upstarts potentially are going to to take away what we consider to be ours by right. Um, and they needed to come up with some form of justification to stop that. So financial fair play, although they, they originally said the aim is to stop debt, when you take a look at Manchester City in particular, they've got no debt. Right. Because Fake Mansour puts all the money in by, by a different way. And it's exactly the same at PSG. So then they said, well, our aim is for clubs to break even. And um, that's that's the nature of FFP as we have it at present, that you're allowed to lose a little bit of money. Owners are allowed to put a bit more in. Mm. Um, so that, you know, in theory, that encourages uh, owner investment. But actually, the aim of financial fair play is to stop another PSG or Chelsea or Manchester City revolutionizing re revolutionizing revolutionizing the game by putting in a huge amount of money recruiting players and talent um and, and becoming a threat to, to those clubs which have regular positions so you know, yeah the, the intriguing thing is that i'm talking to you you know in a newcastle podcast newcastle are that club yeah that ffp is designed to stop yeah yeah totally understand and we'll, we're going to talk obviously plenty about the finances of Newcastle here in a minute, but I'm keen to just fully, fully wrap my head around. So, so is it regulated by FIFA uh, or U, UEFA or who, who's running this show? Right. Well, it, there are separate rules for UEFA. So under the UEFA rules, you are allowed an FFP loss of 30 million euro over three years. There is a variant of that run by the Premier League where you're allowed to lose 105 million sterling mm. uh, over three years. And there's a third variation, which is run by the EFL, which in the championship, you're allowed to lose 39 million over three years. And in League One and League Two, there is a sort of salary cap mm. where you are limited to 60% of your revenues 
in League One and 50% of your revenues in League Two. So we've got all of these different bodies, no unified definition of what's an allowable loss, uh, no logic behind why these numbers have been chosen. Yeah, They, they just appear to have been plucked from air yeah, randomly, no adjustments for inflation. Um, we did have a salary cap in the Premier League and it was it was just about starting to bite, uh, and therefore they went and scrapped it. Right, right, okay. Um, so if you're not playing in a UEFA competition like Newcastle or not, Brighton or not, Kieran's a big Brighton fan. Obviously, that that number that year is irrelevant to you, right? It's just the competition you're playing in. So the the Premier League for our two clubs and and so on and so forth are the ones that you have to you have to try and keep track of effectively, right? Okay, so. Let's take a club like Everton, um, who you guys often talk about on your podcast, because there's often something going on at that club, um, good, bad or indifferent. They appear to the outsider, at least, um, to be in a bit of bother with FFP at the minute. It seems like they've used some numbers for COVID that are a little out of whack, um, if you will, with the rest of the accounts we've seen. Talk, Talk to our listeners a little bit about what's happening at Everton and what what in theory could be the punishment if they are found to have broken FFP? If, if you take a look at Everton's accounts, they've lost £372 million pounds over wow. the last three years and they're allowed to lose 105. So it looks like an open and shut case. But um, you're allowed to... You, you're, you've, you're allowed virtues under FFP. So if you spend money on infrastructure, if you spend money on your women's team, on your youth team, on your community scheme, all of those costs are excluded. But they're not huge for Everton. Um, Then we have had COVID. And if we take a look at the accounts of clubs, what are they saying? Well, we've lost, uh, we've lost ticket sales for 15 months. Mm -hmm. So therefore, what the what the uh, Premier League said, well, we will effectively allow you to replace, you know, we will pretend. But Everton don't generate a huge amount in ticket revenue. They, they normally make probably about £15 million a season in ticket sales. Manchester United make 110. So, mm-hmm. yeah, and, and, and there's nothing wrong with it, what the Everton approach. They're, they're a working class area. Yeah. Don't, don't, have, don't have a bunch of prawn sandwich eaters as, as a fan base. So, you know, uh, keep, keeping ticket prices low is is great in theory. Yeah. Um, and then you've got additional costs of COVID. So costs of testing the players twice a week. Uh, when you're going to away matches, you can't have the whole squad in a single coach. You, you had to put them in two or three coaches to reduce social distancing. If they're in hotels, you couldn't have players in a twin room. They all have to have separate rooms. So there were right. additional costs. Um, and everybody accepts that. And we saw the likes of Newcastle and uh, Leicester and Palace and so on coming out and saying, well, we think over the 15 months in which football wasn't taking place before an audience, most clubs were claiming somewhere in the region of you know, 40, 50, perhaps 60 million quid. Okay. That's your amount of money. Everton said uh, 170. And people oh, went, wow. What? Where do you get that from? <laughs> And they say, well, oh, yeah, yeah. Well, you, know, you, you also need to take into account that, that COVID has uh, traumatised the transfer market. And we've not been able to sell players and get decent fees for them. And then you think, well, hold on. Um, I, I think there's a reason why the likes of, uh, you know, Iwobi, uh, Czech Tosin, uh, you know, and a few others that you've signed, there's a reason why you've not been able to sell them for decent fees uh, or, or even sell them for so a you're paying crazy wages right so the the everton wage bill doubled over the course of sort of the last five to six years because they had a new owner come in and secondly yeah and, and this this isn't a football show secondly they've not signed very good players right <laughs> yeah right yeah it so, so hard, to put the blame to on bad players yeah so you, you, you can't sell bad players for for high fees unless you're selling them to Manchester United. Right, right. So they, um, they they bought bad players and basically tried to blame COVID for the reason why they couldn't then sell them 
at a profit or even a break-even point. So therefore, that should count in their sort of maths for, for FFP in, in a way. That That's right. And they say that they've been working with the, the Premier League mm. and, and we've heard nothing from the Premier League. And, and I think that's one of the problems with the Premier League. So you, you, you never get anything out of them. They're, they're yeah. very, very uh, reluctant to, to be quoted. Um, just before the end of the season, you know, before that final weekend, both Leeds and Burnley said they were going to take legal action. Right. And uh, they felt that Everton should suffer some form of penalty. Now, that could be a financial penalty. So mm-hmm. if, if we go back to, remember the Carlos, Carlos Tevez affair, oh, where yeah. West Ham registered him, um, it turns out he is subject to third-party ownership. I think they ended up paying Sheffield United between 20 and £25 million pounds in compensation. Oh, wow. And that was early 2000s. So Burnley and Leeds said, well, you know, we, if we get relegated, they, 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 they weren't pressing for, for points adjustments because that, that gets too messy and that would be too slow. They were looking for some form of financial compensation. That's all now gone very quiet. Mm. Now, it could be that they've taken legal advice and they've been told it's not worth pursuing. That, that could be option A. Or yeah. it could be that there is legal process taking place. Everybody signed non-disclosure agreements and it's, it's it, you know, we, we will hear something in due course. So, so we simply don't know. Uh, yeah, my understanding is that, that Leeds in particular, they, they don't want to get involved anymore yeah. because they've stayed up. I right. don't understand that. But I think there was some form of gentleman's agreement between Leeds and Burnley the week before the season ended. It doesn't matter which of us go down. Right. Yeah, it could be you. It could be us. Let's work together. Now, what's happened? Yeah, gentleman's agreements, as we know, in the mm. world of football are worth absolutely nothing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, that that was that's really interesting. You know, I've been sort of, even as Newcastle fans, I think keep an eye on what happens at Everton because it could be a sort of a sorry tale for for clubs like Newcastle to avoid um, going forward. We're going to talk about Newcastle's new owners soon um, because, frankly, talking about our previous owner um, is not something our fans like doing all that much. Some of us are still recovering from the Mike Ashley days a little bit, but. When it comes to football finance, when it comes to FFP, um, Mike Ashley sort of actually did quite a good thing with Newcastle. Am I am I to understand that correctly in terms of FFP? Yes, the the legacy that he left behind, and if we take a look at Newcastle over the the fourteen fifteen years of of his ownership. Um, Newcastle, according to my books, made a profit of just over £30 million mm. over that whole period. And in sort of the last three years, I would say that uh, the new owners effectively inherited uh, an FFP profit, which is different from regular accounting profit. Mm. I reckon they had an FFP profit of, of over £100 million, which means that in theory, if they want to, they can go from plus 100 to minus 105. So so it, it wasn't a case of, you know, if, if somebody takes over Everton, they've got no wiggle. Even if they want to spend money, they can't under right. FFP. Right. What Mike Ashley did, because he was, uh, the politest way to describe it, is cautious <laughs> in terms of spend, is that he left, behind, he, he left behind an opportunity for new owners to come in and to spend more money. And then you take into consideration the way that transfer fees are accounted for. If you sign a £50 million player on a five-year contract, you only it only works out as a cost of £10 million a year under what's known as amortisation. So you could spend £500 million on players on five-year contracts, and that's only going to cost you £100 million as far as the accounts are concerned. Right. So that does give the new owners, it gives them flexibility. Now, it, spending it and spending it well are not the same things. Right. Um, and uh, there's there's a report which has just come out in the Times uh, this afternoon, because I know I was, I provided them with some of the numbers, mm. um, which shows, yeah, it, com- it looks at the number of points that clubs have earned compared to the number you would have expected them to earn, given the amount of money that they spent. And 
you know, and we've, we've got clubs like Liverpool and Brentford and Brighton who are at the top of that because they've, they've overachieved. And then you've got clubs such as Manchester United at the bottom. Right. Manchester United spend huge amounts of money um, and they didn't deliver in terms of points. Right. So, uh, you know, I think we, I mean, in terms of the new owners, what they don't want to do is to do the same that, that, that we saw with Manchester City. Remember, Manchester City signed Rubinho. They signed Joe. They signed Adibayor. They signed uh, Wilfred Boney. And then they, they, you know, they probably about 10 goals between them, but right. they, they'd spent the fortune and, and they were, and they, and they stuck around the club because they were on ridiculous wages. Now, I think Newcastle's owners don't want to get into that situation because City could afford to just lose that money because they were involved pre-FFP. I think mm. Newcastle's owners have to be a little bit more careful and spend it a little bit wiser. Yeah, yeah, I think that that's an excellent point. And I think the first transfer window Newcastle had, you know, many people point to the fact that they spent 95, maybe even, even 100 million pounds after the relegation add-ons and so on. But really only, you know, um, Bruno Gimaresh was the biggest chunk of that, about 40 million, 45 million. But I believe he's on a six-year contract, um, mm. whereas all, all of the others were smaller amounts of money on three-year contracts, Kieran Trippier, Dan Byrne, for example. So from an FFP standpoint, you're really not talking about 100 million. You're, you're maybe talking more like 20 or 25 mm. million. Um, I think that's important for fans to understand as well. Because we live in this world of FFP where it's relevant now to Newcastle fans. And frankly, it really wasn't all that relevant um, over the last few years in particular. In fact, there were two transfer windows where we only signed people called Joe Willock, um, who had very little FFP uh, damage at all. Again, I think he signed a six-year contract as well. Um, okay, so talk, talking of the new owners, and we've got some really interesting questions coming in in the comments, which is great. We'll try and sort of weave these in um, to the conversation here because some of them are, are really really quite interesting, including one on, on an owner-based salary cap for new players. But we'll, we'll come back to Chris's question in a second. So the new owners, they've come in, they found a relatively stable financial club, even if the rest of the club was a complete shit show when they came in. Um, what can they do both sort of short-term and long-term to increase their FFP um, spending power or their overall spending power? What, what are some of the steps they can they can do uh, to improve that number? Well, FFP is ultimately, it's income, less costs. So you can either increase your income or you can cut your costs. Mm -hmm. um, where can we get income from? Well, first of all, there's match day income. So is there scope to increase the size of St. James's Park? I'm not so certain about that. Yeah, I think it would be mm -hmm. a, a it would be a big operation for relatively few seats. Could they increase the number of hospitality uh, options at St. James's Park? Now, it doesn't necessarily mean increase the number of boxes. I, I work right. in the city of Liverpool. Um, at, at Liverpool matches, they, they now do hospitality and at, at uh, Aintree, at the race course. And then they oh. bus people in and they sit in decent seats and they make money. So, so can the new owners start to think outside of the box you know, if every if every hospitality box is being sold we can still you know what 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 do people want before a match uh they, they want to meet a legend they want to have a bit of food they want to you know sort of be treated well a bit of pampering and they want decent seats you can still yeah. come up with something like that and uh you know i i, I teach various people in, in you know, various points around the world uh, if, if we take a look at Bayern Munich, for example, they make as much money from the 6,000 hospitality uh, mm -hmm. ticket holders that they've got as they do from the 60,000 regulars. So it, it can be done if the product is right, if people, if there's a goodwill factor towards Newcastle following the takeover, you will find local businesses being willing to say, well, you know, it's a good place to entertain clients. It's a good place to bring yeah. bring staff as a reward when they've done well. And you know, I know times are tough for, for companies and so on. So everybody's got a tight budget, but there is, there, there's a range of things that you can do. So that's what we could do in terms of match day without actually having to increase your season ticket prices significantly. Um, next, we've got uh, broadcast income. 
completely outside of the control of the club because that's set, you know, that's negotiated by the Premier League. But even if Newcastle qualify for the Europa League or the Conference League, that could be worth you know, Europa League, a good run in that. You're probably talking 30 to 35 mil. Mm-hmm. Conference League, 20 to 25. Champions League, you can make you can make well over a hundred mil a season. So, yeah. so yeah, that that's that's aspirational, um, but 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 that, 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 I think that is achievable as well. Yeah, we, we've only got to look at Newcastle's performance since the new year to realise right. that it, it's not it's not outside the realms of possibility. Yeah, so 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 seeking to get sixth or seventh uh, is is something which I, I think would be uh, it within within the realm of the club. Um, so that that's the TV income. Then we come to the third mm. uh, income stream, which is commercial. And uh, over the course of the, the fourteen to fifteen years of Mike Ashley's uh, ownership, and, and I've got a spreadsheet here. Um, in in two thousand and eight, which was the first season of Mike Ashley, uh, Newcastle's commercial income was twenty six million, and by 2019, which is the last season pre-COVID, that had increased to 28. Ah, okay. I now, see a problem there. <laughs> well, it, it, it was, yeah, it's spectacular underachievement. Yeah. Why is the case? Um, I think deals were struck with Mike Ashley's company, which he's perfectly entitled to do. Mm-hmm. Were they going to bring in top dollar? No. Was Mike Ashley himself a potential toxic brand in the sense that Newcastle became tainted by him and therefore commercial partners, sponsors didn't want to put money into the club because they might fear a backlash. We're seeing this at Manchester United at present. Some of their fans are targeting sponsors in terms of giving them negative reviews on social yeah. media and so on. Um, so it was it was difficult for Newcastle and... Uh, people want to be associated with success. Mm-hmm. Mike Ashley didn't deliver on that. Um, so I, I think in terms of commercial income, that's going to be the main avenue that the new owners are going to explore because you know, clearly Newcastle will have an, an increased fan base in the Middle East as a result of this takeover. So pre-season tours, getting you know, individual sponsors in that area. The Premier League are making it more difficult yeah. because they say that they, they've got to effectively approve every deal of over a million pounds. But I've, I've already heard that, um, you know, front of shirt for Newcastle with, was it Fun 88? Yeah. They're probably making eight to nine million a year. Um, that They want to replace that. Uh, I, I was told by by somebody who I trust in the world of football, that, that Newcastle were looking for, for shirt sleeve sponsorship. Um, they're looking for seven and a half million a year. Whereas oh, wow. presently, they're probably getting no more than one, one and a half. Yeah. Um, and they can say, well, well, Chelsea are doing it for 20 million. Manchester United are doing it for 20 million. Seven and a half for Newcastle. Therefore, well, that's not unreasonable. Um, so I, I think we will see... Um, a, you know, ideally, an enhanced commercial department who will start to try to sell the good news. We've already seen that uh, the new owners have uh, done a pay review for yeah. non uh, for, for non uh, you know non non playing staff, uh, right. and I think that's gone down well. Whereas that wasn't really the case under Mike Ashley. Uh, if people are feeling better about their their work environment that productivity goes up and you tend to get more success on the back of that. So that would be the areas that I would address. The the, the final area of, that would contribute towards financial fair play in terms of revenue um, would be player sales. Now, you know, I think Newcastle probably aren't in a position to generate a lot of money from that at present because they are in that, that growth spurt. You know, they are signing players rather than looking to sell players. Um, so, so, that, that would be the revenue areas. In terms of costs, you know, you know, the biggest cost of football clubs is wages. Expect the wage bill to go up. And, and I think that's, that's going to be the balancing act because they've, they've, got to, uh, they've, they've got to try to enhance revenues. 
can they do that? I think there is scope to do that, especially on the commercial side. That will go straight through, as Sir Alan Sugar says, like like prune juice, straight through into wages, straight through into transfer fees and amortisation and so on. And then it's just doing a juggling act to make sure that the increase in wages and transfer fees doesn't push the club too close to the, the £105 million FFP limit, especially if, if the ambitions to get into Europe, because we saw, I think it was two seasons ago, that when I think when Wolves were in their second season in the Premier League, they got into the Europa League. They 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 sailed through the Premier League's FFP limits, but they broke they broke UEFA's and, uh, and they, okay. they they were sanctioned by UEFA as a result. Interesting, interesting. Okay, I want to I want to touch on one more question on on the commercial side before we move on to some other specific questions. So on the commercial side. Quite soon after the buyout of Newcastle United, which maybe was targeted at them, maybe it wasn't. The other Premier League clubs got together and voted on on the passage of a, a new rule that heavily regulated um, owner owner interested company sponsorship, effectively um, in commercial dealings. I, I believe that got sort of slightly re-engineered and, and effectively the Premier League just has to agree on the market value of that deal. So an example of that would be Newcastle can't just go out and get a sponsorship deal with Aramco, for example, for a billion quid, right? Because that, that doesn't meet any sort of market value. The argument that Newcastle fans have, um, mostly amongst themselves, um, is that, you know, we we see ourselves already as a top-tier premiership club, so our market deal should, should reflect that value, um, whereas in reality, perhaps we're more of a middle-of-the-table t- Premier League club, um, not dissimilar, frankly, to, to your club. So maybe our deals should represent that sort of market value. If you don't, if you, it, maybe you can answer this, maybe you can't. How will the Premier League work through that? How will they be able to to really regulate an owner-interested commercial deal? Will, will that even really happen? Um, I, I think they they will be under so much pressure mm. from other clubs, and we, and we and you know it's the it's the greedy six. It's it's those fragrantly innocent clubs that created Super League between them, who now feel that they are the victims in all of this. Um, the Premier League's un- under pressure, and what the Premier League will do is it will use brand consultants, it will use management a- management consultants, and so on, all of whom themselves charge an absolute fortune. Right. Who, who will come up with some sort of algorithm which will say, "Well, we think the deal is worth X," um, and the the aim in this will be to try to act as an anchor in respect of Newcastle's desire to generate additional yeah. revenues. So yes, the, the the rules that were introduced were were specifically aimed at Newcastle. The vote was eighteen in favour of the new rules. Manchester City abstained because they felt they'd be hypocrites if they voted yeah. for it. And and then we got Newcastle voting against. Okay, okay, that that makes sense. Um, Chris has a question that's relevant to the sort of the pace at which Newcastle in, intend to sort of grow and go on this project. There were some reports recently that our new owners are sort of self-imposing a wage cap on new signings of between 100 and 120,000 a week, which, by the way, is, is more than I think anyone at Newcastle is making now. So it's still an increase, certainly. Chris's concern, though, um, is that it will hold us back. It will slow down quicker uh, or more, if you will, the project in development. Talk to us a little bit about sort of player salaries, salary caps, um, how important is is the weekly salary uh, to a player now? Is it more about sort of commercial rights and bonuses, things like that? What what do you think about this idea? Well, if, if you if you talk to agents, you 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 see that they they are aware that most deals are heavily incentivized. Mm-hmm. Um, so there is nothing to to stop a, a, a club such as Newcastle having a basic of. Only, yeah, and, and what yeah. We, yeah, we're talking about five or six million pounds a year. Is, yeah, as, wow. you know, how, I'm not going out of bed for that. Um, <laughs> so, I, I, you know, especially clubs such as Spurs are are hugely incentivized in terms of getting into uh, 
the the Champions League, even Manchester United themselves, that their their wage bill went down by fifty million the last time mm. they didn't qualify for the Champions League. So it, it's a case of um, perhaps offering players a deal which is attractive to them, but becomes very beneficial to them if they achieve certain team goals, team achievements. Um, and that reduces the risk because what you don't want is Newcastle finishing eighth or ninth, not qualifying for Europe. And you've got players on three or four year contract. And this is the position they had at Everton. Under Farhad Mashiri, when he came in, Everton spent half a billion pounds on players in about three or four years. Wow. And they didn't really get anywhere. They, they, yeah, they didn't get anywhere. But they, 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 are, they are right up to their necks in you-know-what when it mm. comes to FFP. So, so this, this is the challenge for the, the owners of Newcastle United. Um, and they've seen what's happened at Everton. Uh, and Everton now have to go backwards. Yeah. Yeah, they now have to sell players. So there's talk about selling Richarlison. Um, that, that, yeah, they're letting quite a few players go. Um, yeah, Calvert-Lewin so, maybe too. Yeah, yeah, yeah Theo yeah. Walcott has gone. Uh, but he's... I think they're glad to get rid of him. Um, yeah, I I know, for example, when they signed uh, Michael Keane from Burnley. Now he mm. was on, but Burnley Burnley pay everybody forty to forty five grand a week. Okay, no, think about Burnley. No big time Charlies at that club. Um, when Burnley, when when Leicester won the the Premier League in. 2016 they tried to sign Michael Keane and they offered him 70 grand a week and Burnley said don't go don't go to Leicester because you've got Wes Morgan you've got Robert Hooth as the first two choices you're, you're gonna be you're gonna be a squad player potentially mm. stay stay an extra year we'll let you go in 12 months time we think you can break into the the England squad and to be fair to Michael Keane he did you know he's, he's not I think it's fair to say he's a solid Premier League centre-half sure. But he got into the England squad. Everton came in for him, and Everton are paying him 130 grand a week. And mm. he's Michael Keane, you know, solid player, right. won't let you down. Is he 130 grand? And the trouble is, who's who's going to take him off? Who, if, if he'd been a bit of a flop, who would take who would take him off your hands? And that's right. the problem that they've got with the likes of uh, you know Walcott and and uh, Tosin and so on. And that's what happened with Manchester City. They, they, they signed all of those players when Mansour came in. Mm. Now, that was pre-FFP, so that they, they just incurred losses. But Manchester City lost £197 million in one year <sighs> as wow. a result of that policy. That's why Newcastle, I think, uh, need to take a sensible approach. Because yeah. if they do that, they are knackered from FFP, not just the season in which it occurs, but you're knackered really for the next two or three years because those players won't leave. Right, right, yeah. So it's a little bit sort of learning from the mistakes of others. But I think also, you know, as a, as a, as a player in that squad, if you've been there two or three years and let's say you are only earning 50 or 60,000 pounds, I'm sure Newcastle have a whole handful of players earning that kind of money. If suddenly a guy comes in, you know, earning double and triple and, and quadruple that, it does probably risk upsetting the culture of the club. And, you know, while not all of our players are very good Premier League players, it does seem like they all get along really well. And there seems to be a really strong dressing room culture that you probably wouldn't want to upset by bringing in a, a couple of big time Charlies on 200, 250 grand all of a sudden. Anyway, so well, I think it is a bit of an evolution thing, isn't it, really? Yeah. If they come in and they deliver... Mm. Then all is forgiven, right? If they come in and they don't deliver, which happened, you know, Rubinio was a party animal at <laughs> at, at Manchester City, as, as we all know. Um, and you then say, well, yeah, why why should I bust a gut? Yeah, uh, if if I see, you know, such and such a player who's on twice, two or three times my earnings, he's out every night. Um, so you you you've got to buy well, and this is where. The recruitment of Dan Ashworth comes in mm. because Dan Ashworth, in my opinion, won't allow that to happen. Yeah, no, that's a that's a really interesting point and an excellent segue. Um, we want to talk about Dan Ashworth a little bit. He's come to our club from your club, of course, Brighton. He's been at England and, and West Brom as well. He sort of referenced himself um, as the the spoke in the middle of the wheel, making sure that all of the elements of that wheel 
um, turn appropriately at the same time in the same order and, and so on and so forth. Talk a little bit about, you know, what you know about Dan and the role he played, you know, evolving Brighton into a, into a mid-table top 10 um, Premier League team. And what should we expect as Newcastle fans? What kind of a difference do you think he can make at Newcastle? I, I think somebody like Dan Ashworth gets everybody rowing in the same direction at the same time and increases the speed of, mm. of the boat on, on the back of that. Um, and... He is, he's, un, he's, he's sort of fairly unique is that he, he, he understands the football side of things and he understands the business side of things. So when, when you talk to, when you talk to managers, so, I mean, I've, I've taught people like, I, I, I teach for the LMA yeah. um, and, and you get to hear uh, managers talk about football as such um, and things which, you know, I used to keep my ears open. Uh, would be yeah we like Ash, Ash Dan Ashworth because he can put our point of view across to the board in a way that the board understands that we can't articulate and also we can understand what the board wants as well so he he's he's good at at building bridges he's good at establishing relationships uh you know football as we know is an emotional game mm. and you've got owners who are quite emotional, I think it's fair to say. Mm -hmm. um, and I think Dan Ashworth will act as sort of the buffer. So if, if Newcastle lose two or three matches, he'll he'll be able to say, well, OK, let, let's look at this from a football point of view and a business point of view. And he'll just calm everybody down, stop stop things getting overheated. Um, in terms of recruitment, uh, if, if you take a look at some clubs, they sign players because the player looks good. Mm. But what you want is, is that player going to in, improve Newcastle? You know, he might be a great player. doesn't mean that he can fit in with, with eight of the, the starting 11 yeah. of your club. And, and what Dan Ashworth's strength is, is being able to do an assessment of players in terms of compatibility. So you know, we don't just want a really, you know, you know, Brighton, we've got a fantastic left back, mm. left wing back called Kukurea. Um now, he, it looks like he's going to go to Manchester City. He will be a perfect fit at Manchester City, but it doesn't necessarily mean he'll be good at Manchester United. It doesn't necessarily right. mean he'll be good at Newcastle because he's got to fit into the right style of play. And I think somebody like Ashworth has the ability to take a step back and say, this person has to be right for our style of play, for our culture, and not just because he looks a fantastic player, he's a player of the season in such and such a club, He's, he's had 10 good matches um, and now everybody's raving about him. And, and I think that that calmness of Ashworth, his emotional intelligence, as well as his general intelligence, are really beneficial. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's um, that's a great way of looking at it. I think he brings a level of, of sort of football experience, clearly, that that new board doesn't have, right, other than Jamie Rubin's experience at QPR. Uh, which wasn't all that long, I don't think. Um, there's really no one else on that board who has a, has a massive amount of, of experience in, in English football, certainly. So I think that that's really tremendous. A lot of fans are already talking about him as the signing of the off-season, let alone anyone we end up bringing in um, in this window. I, I want to switch gears a, a little bit and talk about the ownership um, within the Premier League. Obviously, the Newcastle United owners have come under a massive amount of scrutiny, um, a massive amount of criticism in many corners. It's been difficult for a lot of fans to sort of wrap their heads around uh, some of the ins and outs of all of that. We're not going to focus too much on that today. I think that's maybe for, for a different conversation. What I do want to ask you about, though, is in reference to the Greedy Six and, and some of those other clubs in the Premier League, we're, we're now getting to a point um, uh, where... Almost half the league, I believe, are owned by Americans, um, either private equity funds based in America, individuals based in America. And in my mind, um, not enough people actually are talking about some of the risks that come with that. Right. In the Premier League, it takes 14 votes, if I'm not mistaken, Kieran, to, to change, yeah, yeah. change a principle, change a rule, change a regulation like the one we were talking about earlier. And one of those being um, the issue of relegation, right? The Super League uh, was fancied by some of these American owners because it guaranteed their spot um, at the top of the pyramid, if you like, certainly in the European competition. 
do you think I'm being overly um, sort of conspiracy minded here to think that there's a concern that if we get many more American owners, the, the sort of conversation about relegation and its existence perhaps um, becomes a bigger part of the, the Premier League? What, what do you think about that? Am I being crazy? I, I don't think relegation will disappear full stop. Uh, there would be too much of a fight about that. And also, um, relegation fights are great. <laughs> That's true, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah you, you think about the good feeling. About, yeah, if, if Newcastle had gone from 20th to, to their final position in the season, yeah, it would have been nice. The fact that they... You, you talk to people at Everton, you talk to people mm. at Leeds. That, that, that last week of the season was absolutely amazing for, for, for those for those fans. So, you know, re relegation is part of the excitement of the game. Yeah. Because otherwise, I think I think that there is a genuine danger of the non-big greedy six clubs. But I think you, you, you then have to question, you know, what, what's our purpose? Because actually, for me as a Brighton fan, avoiding relegation is an achievement. Yeah. Because we, yeah. we've got a absolutely. bottom six budget every year. Yeah. So, and anything above that is, is a fantastic achievement. Um, if you take that away and you say, well, and, and you every year you're going to finish, you know, somewhere between 15th and 20th and so what? Then, then yeah, you've got to ask yourself, why are we doing this? And, and, yeah. and you, you stop going to matches because, uh, you know, Newcastle versus Burnley, sort of six weeks before the end of the season, massive match. Mm -hmm. If both, if neither of those sides can get relegated, you think, well, what? Why am I going to make that extra bit of effort to attend? Yeah. So I don't think relegation will go full stop, but there is no doubt that the American owners want to de-risk their investment, and we've seen what's happened at Burnley. Uh, you know, the the owners have effectively used the club's own money and money that they've borrowed to buy the club. That money now has a substantial amount of that money has to be repaid mm. over the course of the next 12 months. Some of it's already been repaid um, and the club's financial security has been uh, compromised on the back of that. Right. But, yeah, Burnley will be OK. They'll, they'll, they've, they've got players who they can sell. They're probably about to sell one to you yeah. as we both know. Mm -hmm. um, but I think American owners would like to reduce the number of relegation spots. Right. And under Project Big Picture, what did we see? Relegation went down from three. It was three teams. Uh, three teams effectively went up. Down. No, no, it was it was the bottom two teams who got relegated. And then the team that finished third bottom was in a playoff with somebody from the championship. Yeah. So you know, if you're a Premier League team, you've got a much bigger wage budget. You've got a much bigger transfer budget. That means, yeah, probably four times out of five that Premier League club was not going to get relegated. Yeah. And uh, that's what they that's what they're looking to do. So I think they know that they wouldn't get away with abolishing relegation altogether. And there's even talk in the MLS about having relegation now oh, to, yeah. to, to increase the level of excitement. Um, I think it's further evidence as to the necessity for an independent regulator mm. who can act in the best interests of all 92 clubs. And, and having aspirations is is fantastic. You know, I, I saw Brighton finish 91st in the pyramid mm -hmm. two years on the trot. And, you know, six weeks ago, I, I saw us beat Manchester United 4-0 and it should have been 7. Yeah. And, 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 you know, and, and if you are a supporter of a smaller club, it's that dream that, that keeps you keeps you driving on. Yeah, uh, and it doesn't matter whether it's Brighton or Wigan or Swansea or you know Brentford have just got to the Premier League for the first time. Absolutely fantastic. If, if you if you take away all that that sort of romance out of the game, what what are you left with? Yeah, no, I I completely agree. I completely agree. Relegation and surviving relegation is among the most exciting feelings for for football fans, and for many of us, it's a bit like winning a trophy because we haven't won a trophy for. 50 or 60 or 70 years in the case of Newcastle. Um, we've had some some really good questions come in, Kieran, that I want to try and grab some of them. Chris uh, Chris in Essex, or Chris Essex, um, asked, is the academy under FFP? And if so, um, you know, could we sign 16, 17, 18-year-olds and will they count towards FFP? 
we're in talks now with the 19-year-old um, from France, Hugo Ekatike. I think he would count towards FFP, right? Because he would be considered a, pro a professional contract. But if you're signing a 17-year-old, does that count as well? Um, well, remember, you, you can't sign, as, as a result of Brexit, you can't sign 16, 17-year-olds. Two professional from contracts, right, okay. So, so you have to wait till they turn 18 and then they'd be professionals. So you wouldn't be able to get that benefit. Um, could you sign 16 and 17-year-olds from other clubs for 20 million? You could, but awful lot of risk. It's, yeah, you, you don't know whether they. You know, there's, there's, how many new Stephen Gerrards have we heard mm. about <laughs> at the age of sixteen or seventeen, and then they're playing for Barrow. Yeah, and that's no disrespect to Barrow. Right, at the age of twenty-four. Yeah, yeah, no, that that makes a lot of sense. We, we another one from Chris um, about free agent signings. So you know there are lots of free agents out there at the moment, including. Dybala and Bale, you know, so would bringing in a big name like that um, on big wages, but without a transfer fee, sort of allow us to increase that marketing potential, sell more shirts, more, you know, more gimmicks um, with their name on it. That would have quite a positive impact on FFP, other than the fact, obviously, that their wages are included in that calculation, right? But there's no fee for that, no transfer fee. There's no fee, but what we are seeing, if we take a look at what's happened with Mbappe, mm. Uh, you know, he's he signed a new contract. He got a hundred and fifty million pounds signing on fee. So there's no transfer fee, but there's there's a huge incentive. Um, no, I think we've lost you there, Kieran. Have you come back? We'll try and get Kieran back here um, to have that question answered about free transfers and signing on fees and things like that. There are a couple of other good questions um, that came in uh, that I think we'll try and get to as well if we can get Kieran back. I know we were coming up on. Uh, 50 minutes as it was so we may have been running out of time but we'll try and get Kieran back if everyone hangs tight uh, give us one second and we'll try and get Kieran back on the show well hang tight everybody oh here he is I think we've got him back yeah sorry I'm because of the rail strike I'm stuck in a hotel and what happens is every 24 hours they cut off your internet uh, so you right. have to go and re-register sorry about that no no um, that's, that's quite all right in, in respect of uh shirt sales it's a bit of a myth mm. that signing a player makes a huge difference because you tend to only get 7% of the value of the shirt as the club. Oh, that low. Um, but also, if you think about it, if you're going to sign, let's say you sign Bale, you're going to have Bale on the back of your shirt instead of somebody else's name. You're not going to buy two shirts. Mm. You're going to buy the one shirt with a different name on it. So it, and is Gareth Bale actually, yeah, there's very few players that could, yeah, Messi would make a difference. Right. <laughs> uh, Ronaldo would potentially, you know, he, he certainly, but, but it's, at, it's, it's, it's hugely overstated the impact that signing such a player has because your, your hardcore fan base buy the shirts anyway. Right, right. So, you know, are they going to, are you going to buy two shirts? You know, if, if, if Gareth Bale signed for Brighton, I'd still buy a Brighton shirt. I wouldn't, wouldn't buy two. Right. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Wow. Seven percent. I didn't realize it was that low that I would have guessed it was more like half. But uh, no. that, that's very interesting. Um, one last question, Kieran. I'll read this one out. Um, came in just just while you were off air, actually, I think there. But so because Ashworth was brought in after Eddie Howe um, instead of uh, normally you'd, you'd see it the other way. Um, does that dictate how Newcastle want to play from a philosophy standpoint? Or do you think that will sort of evolve um, as the club evolves. Uh, to me, at least, I'll give my my two cents on this. I think that it's quite clear how Eddie Howe wants to play. He really stuck to a 4-3-3 formation, which, all you know, to be fair, is is not an unusual formation. I don't know how Brighton played under, under Dan Ashworth. Obviously, they had multiple managers, but I, I don't think Graham Potter was necessarily answering to Dan Ashworth on formation and things like that, right? No, no, the, the coach's job is that of the first team coach. Dan Ashworth will be looking after the men's team, the under 20s, under 3s, under 18s, making sure that he is in constant communication with Eddie Howe, such that the the philosophy and the spine of all of the teams, right down to the under 8s, they are all taught that this is the Newcastle way. Mm -hmm. uh, the same applies to the women's team. The same applies. Uh, so so it's, it's a case of the... 
Dan Ashworth, to a certain extent, will be Eddie Howe's shop steward. Mm-hmm. You know, they'll be looking after his interest in terms of the negotiations with Amanda Staveley and the board and so on. Um, he, it's not his job to get involved necessarily even in the detailed elements of the of individual transfers. You know, at Brighton, that was always left to the chief executive. Right. Um, but he would work with the manager to say, this is where we think the priorities lie in terms of if you want to have this style of play, here's a list of four or five players who would fit in with that, as opposed to agents coming in and agents trying to sell their players. So, so you know, Dan Ashworth's job is, is to act as a buffer for that type of things. Yeah, I understand. No, Chris makes a great point there. He says it sounds a, lo- a lot like the sort of Ajax system um, mm. that we all remember from, from some cer- certainly our childhood and, and has obviously still been very successful today. Um, one last question from Chris, and this is this is a really interesting one for Newcastle fans. We all absolutely love St. James's Park. For me, you know, living on the other side of the world, there is nothing more that I look forward to when going back to, to England to going to St. James's Park. Do, do, do you think the new owners will be forced to look at moving away from St. James's Park to increase match day revenues, given that we're not likely to see more than a four or 5,000 increase possible at, at St. James's Park at the moment? Obviously, City and, and Spurs did this to increase their revenues. Is that something Newcastle might have to do? I think that would be a nice problem in mm. four or five years' time. But you know, if Newcastle can go from 52 to 56, 57... Um, yeah, an, an extra thousand, an extra thousand seats doesn't actually bring in a lot of money. Right. An extra thousand hospitality seats does. Right. So, yeah, could could match day revenue be changed, or could it be increased? And this won't, this will upset some hardcore fans mm. if they they sort of revamp the existing ground to to make it more. Uh, of a match day, you know, friendly in terms of, uh, you know, at, 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 at the Etihad, for example, they've got something called the Tunnel Club. Mm, yes. Yeah. That, that, that doesn't appeal to me. I think you, you look over where, you know, when the players come out, that that, that area is, is now clear perspective. Yeah. So you yeah. get to see the players, you know, chatting to each other, uh, you know, flicking the Vs at Mike Dean behind his back <laughs> and all this type of stuff. Um, and people are prepared to pay big money for that. So I, I think there could be some. There are some easy wins potentially available. Some of the the other ones could be. I think you know you could end up splitting certain sections of the fan base. Yeah. Um, it would be very expensive to build a new stadium. You know, Spurs Spurs's new stadium. We, you know, we we are talking the thick end of a billion pounds. Yeah. Um, and it has worked for Spurs. Right. Spurs match day revenue has gone from around about 35 million a year. If they have a good run in the in the Champions League, we could be looking at 120. Oh wow, that big so, times, yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. I think I think the fan base would be very torn on a move away from St James's Park. I mean it is yeah. it is yeah, one of those is. iconic stadiums, isn't it? Yeah, I, I think I think there'd be a lot of reluctance. There's there's an emotional investment, the fact that it is in the center of the city as mm. well. Yeah. yeah, as an away fan, it's, it's one of the trips you look forward to. Yeah, yeah. There is there is also the issue of safe standing coming back and the option for clubs to invest in safe standing. I think it would slightly increase the capacity of the Gallagate, which is where they've they've talked about doing safe standing in the past. But again, it's not it's not like ten thousand more people. Mm. It's it's maybe a thousand or two thousand, and then does the cost you know outweigh the benefits perhaps mm. of, of doing that too? Even though a lot of people say it would improve the experience of going to the game. It may not actually provide a great deal of revenue to the club. So all very interesting stuff. Um, I don't have any other questions myself. Um, I think that we've covered, I mean, I could literally talk to you all day about this, Kieran. and that's how much of a nerd I am as well. Um, but I know you've got other things to do uh, with the rest of your evening. So I really do appreciate it. For those folks that uh, watched in tonight, if you're not a subscriber yet, we would really love it. Um, if you would add a sub. And of course, please go and listen to Kieran's pod as well. Uh, Price of Football and grab his book as well. Why not? Kieran, you did an excellent thing. I wanted to make sure I pointed this out. And, and if you want to talk about this, of course, please do. You recently donated to the, some of the royalties of your book um, to the victims in Ukraine. So I wanted to give you massive kudos for that. Um, I, I wish 
more people would do things like that. I think that was a really tremendous gesture. Um, and as you said on a pod recently, talking about England's players giving their 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 earnings to to charity, you know, lots of people could do more but don't. Um, so I really really appreciate the fact that you did that. I thought that was tremendous. Well, thanks very much. I mean, um, yeah, again, it's I, I've never authored a book before, so as I explained it to my wife. I've never had any book. I've never had any royalties, so therefore I'll never miss them. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, we've I mean, we've sold about ten to twelve thousand copies, and, it, and the book's actually published by a a book publisher in Newcastle. Mm. Um, I, I've not earned a penny from the book. Hundred percent of the royalties have gone first of all to the first edition. Everything went to the Trussell Trust, which is a food bank charity, which is close to my heart. I, I mm. work for them do, doing some of the distributions. Uh, and, and the second edition's gone to the U Ukraine relief. Uh, yeah, third third edition is, is going to me, as, as or rather, it's going to my missus because <laughs> she hardly ever sees me anymore. Yeah, yeah, no, that's, that's that's tremendous work. Well, like I said, Kieran, thank you so much for coming on. This was an interview that I was really excited to do. Uh, I'm so glad we got the opportunity to talk and. You know, maybe when Newcastle qualify for the Champions League, we'll, we'll have you back on and we can talk about the ramifications of that. <laughs> Tremendous. Look forward to it. Yeah. Cheers. Thank you so much. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye.